0: The Gospel lesson for this second Sunday in Lent comes from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. You can find it on page 739 of the Pew Bible. As Jesus is journeying now toward Jerusalem for the last time, some friends, or maybe they're not so much of friends, Come to warn him about a threat to his life. Please stand as you are able for the gospel. From Luke 13, beginning at verse 13, we read in Jesus' name. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course." Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, You will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. This gospel lesson reads kind of like a Western, and for just a moment here, I think I might help to translate it into the language of a Western. It goes something like this. Some Pharisees come to Jesus and say to him, you best be moving along now, because we hear Herod is fixing to kill you. Now, when this happens in a Western, if you've watched a few of them, you know you basically have two options. You can stay in town and face the guy who wants to kill you, in which case you might die, and you basically have no control over this. It all depends on whoever wrote the script. Your other option is to leave town, in which case you will probably live, but everyone will call you a coward. That is kind of like what's happening in this text. Jesus is on a journey. We don't know what town he's in when this happens, but we do know where he is going. He is on a journey to Jerusalem. So he's somewhere between Galilee, that was his home territory in northern Israel, and Jerusalem, which is in southern Israel. And quite a large portion of the Gospel of Luke takes place while Jesus is on this journey. It's way back in chapter 9 that Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. So that's where the journey begins. And it continues all the way through chapter 19 when he rides into Jerusalem, finally on a donkey. Typically, it would only take a person a few days to walk from Galilee to Jerusalem, but Luke fills 10 whole chapters with everything that Jesus does while he's on this journey. So we figure with all the miracles and the teachings in these 10 chapters that it took Jesus a bit longer than a few days. It was more like a tour. Jesus had a definite end in mind, but he had a lot to do along the way. So it's somewhere in the middle of this journey that these Pharisees come and warn Jesus about Herod's intent. And it's a little bit hard to say whether these Pharisees are friendly toward Jesus or hostile. In general, most of the encounters that Jesus has with the Pharisees were hostile. However, we do know that there were at least a few Pharisees who were actually friendly toward Jesus. Nicodemus was a prime example of this, but there seemed to be a few others as well. It may be that they warn Jesus of Herod's murderous intent because they're honestly trying to protect him. But it's also possible that their intentions are evil. It may be that they want Jesus out of their own region. So they're using Herod's murderous intent to suit their own purposes. Or it may also be, and I think this is the most likely case, that they're actually making up this whole thing uh, as part of their own plot to trap Jesus in Jerusalem. And I tend to think that this idea is right, uh, that the Pharisees are just making it up. Because later, at the end of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, uh, uh, Herod, he's actually going to get his chance to meet Jesus face to face. Now, this happens after Jesus is arrested and after he is delivered to Pilate. Uh, Because Pilate, he learns that Jesus is from Herod's jurisdiction up in Galilee and he sends Jesus over to see Herod then, because Herod was also in Jerusalem for the Passover. But when Herod has Jesus in front of him, he doesn't find any guilt in him, and he doesn't find any reason to kill him. All he does is mock him and send him back to Pilate. If Herod actually wanted Jesus dead, he must have changed his mind, because he didn't do it when he got the chance. So we don't know exactly what the Pharisees' motivation is, uh, is here. What really matters, though, is how Jesus responds to it. Now remember, he has these two basic options, which we learned from the Westerns to stay in town and face the mean guy who's threatening your life, or to run away and risk being called a coward. And notice what Jesus does here he decides to run away. But there's more to it than that. He tells the Pharisees that he is going on his way, but his reasons are different than the standard Western plot. Jesus is going away not to save his life, but to lose it. He says, I must go on my way, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus accepts the threat against his life. He's actually on board with this whole being killed thing. The location is what he disputes. If Jesus stays where he is, he's not going to die. Even if Herod really is trying to kill him, and even if Herod catches up to Jesus there, Jesus is not going to die there, because that is not the appointed place for Jesus to die. Now, people have tried to kill Jesus before, but it never works. It will only work at the appointed time in the appointed place. The only scenario in which Jesus is actually going to die is if he continues to Jerusalem on this journey. And so that is what Jesus is going to do. This is what he has been intentionally doing this entire journey. So he insists on going to Jerusalem. Then speaking of Jerusalem, then Jesus goes into this lament over the city. It's the holy city, which makes their unbelief all the more tragic. A little bit of history might be helpful here. Uh, Jerusalem became the capital of Israel and the place of worship um, about 1000 BC. So this would be about 400 years after the Israelites left Egypt and came into the Promised Land. Uh, they left. Uh, they came into Israel about 1400. And then it was around 1000 BC that King David moved the capital from Hebron to Jerusalem. And that's when he brought, or shortly after that, he brought the Ark of the Covenant to the tabernacle there. And it was then that Jerusalem became the holy city. So it wasn't always the holy city, but at that time it became so because God had promised to dwell above the mercy seat and between the two cherubim above the Ark of the Covenant. Then in the next generation, after David, uh, King Solomon, and his son, built the first temple. Uh, And so Jerusalem was kind of uh, cemented then as the holy city. Now, they had their ups and downs, but Jerusalem remained the holy city for a thousand years now. This, however, doesn't change human nature. Jerusalem, like every other city, refused to believe the word of the Lord. God would send prophets to her, but she would not listen. Instead of listening, they persecuted them. A good example of this is the prophet Jeremiah, whom we just read about in the Old Testament lesson. He was threatened with death because he spoke against the city and called them to repentance. This was leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and that destruction happened in 586 B.C., and Jeremiah prophesied up to that event and a little ways after it. Now, God had even told Jeremiah that the people of Jerusalem would fight against him. But Jeremiah went, and he called them to repentance anyway, because this is what God had called him to do. And sure enough, the people did not listen. And finally, King Nebuchadnezzar came, took the rulers into captivity into Babylon, where they remained for 70 years. It's really this pattern that develops throughout the entire Old Testament that the prophets are rejected because the people don't want to hear or obey their call to repentance. But God keeps sending prophet after prophet. So there comes a point, especially by the time we get to Jesus, where God starts to look a little bit foolish. Why would you keep sending prophets knowing that they will be rejected? And why would you send your only son, knowing that he will be killed? The answer, at least in the case of the prophets, is that some of the people will hear the word and repent. It always seems to be a minority, but God preserves a remnant through these prophets. And the answer, in the case of Jesus, is that it's actually the whole point of him coming. His purpose is to be rejected and killed. And this is the reason he sets his face toward Jerusalem. Despite their opposition and despite knowing that they will kill him, he goes there out of his love for them to be the sacrifice for their sins. And I want you to notice how foolish this sounds because it's the foolishness of this that really accentuates the love of God. When Jesus goes to the cross to die... He doesn't do it for good people. He doesn't do it for people who really deserve it but are just kind of down on their luck. He doesn't do it for people who have been pleading with him to come and forgive their sins. He does it really for people who don't want it. He does it for people who are telling him that if he doesn't shut up about being the Son of God, they're going to kill him. He does it for people who don't really think they need forgiveness. He does it for people who think they can obtain their own righteousness. Jesus does it for people who don't deserve it. And Think about this. Jesus offers himself as the sacrifice for the sins of the very people who want to kill him. And he will even pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now he's grieved by the whole thing. He laments the fact that the people of Jerusalem will cry for his blood. But his concern is not that he is going to die. He knows that's what he has to do. He laments that these are lost souls. He doesn't mind dying for them. But as long as they persist in their unbelief, they'll never enjoy the benefits of his sacrifice for them. And here we really see the compassion of God, who never desires that any should perish, For even though their rebellion works into God's plan to bring salvation to the entire world, Jesus still weeps over their rejection of him. He weeps, not for his sake, but for theirs. He doesn't mind dying for them. He just wants them to know what he is doing for them so that they might believe and live. He feels like a mother hen. This is the illustration Jesus gives us. A mother hen whose instinct is to gather her chicks under her wings, but they won't have it. Imagine how a mother hen would be if her chicks are running this way and that, willing to be anywhere but under her protection. That's how Jesus felt regarding Jerusalem. His concern was not for himself, but for them. So his emotional response to them is not anger, but sadness. Deep sadness. Now, when we imagine how God must feel regarding our sins, we often project the emotion of anger onto him. But that's not really what we see in this text. Now, anger is an appropriate response to sin, and God is capable of anger. But his wrath and anger over sin was poured out completely upon the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So he does not continue to be angry over sin. And he is not angry over your sin. Our natural tendency is to think that God is angry over sin. We think, oh, I've really done it this time. God will never forgive me now. We make this error because we think of God as a strict master instead of a tender father. But think about this. Think about whether our natural tendency is right or wrong. If a child runs away from home... How do the parents feel about that? Are they more angry or are they more sad and worried? They might be partially angry because even good parents are still sinful, but the primary reaction is sadness. They love their child and they hope that no harm will come. Now, if this is true for human parents, how much more for our perfect and merciful Heavenly Father? He is grieved by our sin and unbelief, not because he is angry, but because he is saddened by our wandering away from him. So do not think of God as a strict master whom you must earn salvation from, because that is not God. Think of God as a tender father who desires to forgive, protect, and provide, because that is who he is. And so when you sin, do not hide from God. This has been our natural tendency since the first sin, But you cannot hide from God. You can only pretend that you're pulling it off. Do not hide from God. God is saddened by our sin, no doubt, because it is contrary to his good and gracious will for our lives. But he is not angry. God is not angry with you. Like a mother hen, he desires to gather you under his protection. He is grieved most when we refuse his forgiveness. Now God has dealt with your sin, and God dealt with his own righteous anger when, for a moment, the Father turned his back on the Son and poured out all his wrath over sin. And there the Son, a willing sacrifice, joyfully bore that condemnation for the sake of your eternal forgiveness. So God is not angry with you. God is never angry with you. He is gracious and loving toward you. His desire is for you to live and rejoice as his forgiven child. For this reason, Jesus kept going. He journeyed toward the cross to bear your sin and secure for you an eternal redemption. He was rejected for you. So confess your sin, believe, and live. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding... Guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.